Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest today is Amy Elizabeth Fox. Amy is a senior leadership strategist with two decades of experience consulting to Fortune 500 companies on issues of human capital, organizational health, and leadership development. She is the chief executive officer of Mobius Executive Leadership, a premier leadership development firm with offices in Boston and London. Since 2005, Amy has served as one of the lead designers and lead faculty members in Mobius transformational leadership programs offered globally. She is also the founder of the Next Practice Institute, a professional development arm for coaches and facilitators, and has helped build a global firm with over 200 practitioners and long-standing relationships with some of the world's most innovative companies. Additionally, I'll be donating to and raising awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice with each and every episode. This episode, the organization is called The Pocket Project, which Amy discusses towards the very back end of this conversation. Please join me in donating. It is for a really wonderful cause. It deals with collective trauma and ways that we can heal collective trauma. And this conversation with Amy has many highlights, but I will give you just a few of them. In the beginning of this conversation, we talk a little bit about Amy's own healing journey and specifically how she was brought to her knees in her 20s by a cancer diagnosis and was really confronted with, at a pretty young age, the important questions in her life. I believe the line that she used in this conversation is, God did not spare me my life so that I would not be of service. And you can see it is so evident in this conversation what Amy's commitment to service is. We talk about the work that she does at Mobius and executive coaching and the importance of inner work for creating strong cultures of belonging, for cultures of trust, for cultures of really for love. We talk about the impact of personal and collective trauma and the way that that shows up for pretty much every single human on this planet. We talk about the work that her sister, Erica Ariel Fox, has done with archetypes in dreamer, lover, warrior, and thinker. And we talk about how spirituality and the commitment to service and appreciation for beauty are not things that we need to sequester from work. They are actually necessary for creating strong culture in our life and in the workplace. Amy is such a wonderful and beautiful human and soul. I so cherished this conversation with her, and I know that you will too. With all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath. And enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Amy Elizabeth Fox. Amy, welcome to My Search for Meaning. Thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be with you, Michael. I'm so delighted to be with you too. Such a fan of what you're doing at Mobius. And I can't wait to unpack all the influences of you, your work, and Mobius. And before we get into that, I, I like to spend the first, we'll call it 20 minutes or so, just 
understanding your come from and, and what you were like as a child. And the first question that I ask most of my guests, almost every single one of them, is what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? <laughs> it's a wonderful question. Well, let me set a momentary context then for what it was like at the dinner table growing up. My parents were both academics. They were educational psychologists and they were social activists. So, And I'm the oldest of four daughters of David and Louise Fox. So the dinner table was robust conversation. It was heated and emotional. It was deeply concerned about how to create a life, a world that was more just and more equitable and more noble and more peaceful. And there was a ton of fighting. We were all very opinionated and New York Jewish culture, and nobody was shy to say what they felt or what they needed or what they wanted or what they agreed with or disagreed with. So I learned many things at that dinner table, including how to have a a mind that was engaged and curious and open to learning and how to have a life that was informed by social care and uh, how to have emotional expression and how to have conflict, I would say, not mm-hmm. necessarily in that order. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's interesting because a, lo- a lot of times when I ask that question, there's, well, one of my maybe conditioned patterns is that I anticipate that a lot of people in our field started, maybe came from a family that didn't support what they ultimately end up ended up doing with their current work. And it sounds like from day one, you were actually born into a family that was encouraging you to be exactly where you are today, is what it sounds like to me, right? Like there was a deep commitment to social justice to creating an equitable world were there yeah let me just respond to what you said if i could so yes absolutely some of my core values and the principles in which mine and my sister erica's lives are based are informed by the beauty of what they stood for and what they gave us as transmission of what matters that's true but i wouldn't want to overly romanticize my upbringing either you know, there was a lot of trauma in our family across generations and a lot of pain in my early life. And that is also an equally important seed in what my life is devoted to, not just what was, you know, really refined in our family, but what was really challenging and painful in our family. Mm-hmm. And probably even in not even in equal measure, I, I would say my life as a healer and as a teacher and Mobius's commitment to generational healing and trauma work comes very much out of the walk that I had as a child. And I wouldn't want to gloss over that by just pointing to what was beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for naming that. So what was the, as you came of age and were going to college and in your adolescent late teen years, where was the first, I guess, place you decided to channel all of that energy? What was, what was the first swipe at a career path that you took? Well, I decided when I was age nine, I think I told my father, I'm going to be a psychotherapist when I grow up. So, and my favorite game as a child was that I would put a bunch of stuffed animals in a classroom because both of my parents were teachers and we had chalkboards in our house. And my father would come home with mimeographs and I would spend hours and hours after school teaching my stuffed animals. So I think the archetype of teacher and therapist were early in my blood. I don't think I came to them late in life. I think I came to them super precociously early. I got very interested in literature in high school, and I studied a great deal of English in college. I was very, very interested in narrative and biography and how you could learn about human experience and the dimensions of human experience through literature. 
And I also was a women's studies major in college. So that really helped me to refine my understanding of the dynamics in society around power and oppression and what it means to be part of a liberatory movement in life. So I think all, psychology and women's studies were my majors at Wesleyan, and um, I had wonderful mentors there and really got a political sensibility and sensitivity in that process, and on, along with a sort of lifelong fascination with the human psyche and the process of relationship and intimacy and the restorative process of therapeutic healing, all of that. Yeah. Mm. And did you become a psychotherapist at first? I believe the answer is yes. Yes, but not at first. I left Wesleyan and I went and worked for two wonderful years at City College of New York, looking at teacher education and the process of how we refine educators with a particular interest in how to help at-risk youth in New York City schools who were really struggling to find a place and a, and a career path that a good education ought to be offering them. And I went from there, I had the enormous privilege of spending a decade at the Cathedral Church of St. John the Divine, working other, under um, the dean there, Dean Morton and Paul Gorman, who were extraordinary vis visionary activists, linking religious life and environmental issues and social justice issues and liturgy that was designed to awaken and open people's hearts. And mm -hmm. I got a wonderful education in consciousness and in social movements. I had the particular extraordinary honor of helping Jim and Paul to create with Carl Sagan and uh, then Senator Gore, something called the National Religious Partnership for the Environment, which was a multi-faith effort to respond religiously, ethically, morally, and theologically to the environmental crisis and issues of climate degradation. And uh, I learned a great deal from them about how you wake people up to the issues of our time and how you bring coalitions together across seeming divisions on behalf of what is the ultimate common cause of care for creation. So that was what really that was the apprenticeship I had in being a social entrepreneur and a cultural creative and I feel very grateful for how much they invested in my apprenticeship. And I left there feeling the sort of emptiness of doing large-scale social change work that didn't have psychological intelligence underneath it and didn't have the intimacy and beauty of close exchange between people. I got really interested in how could you make culture change and adjust cultural architecture, but in a more intimate way. So that had me go back and get a master's in counseling and practice uh, briefly as a therapist. I worked in an alcohol rehab center and I worked in a methadone clinic and I had the privilege of doing a year of couples counseling. And then I brought all of that together in having the delight of sharing Harvard Law School's work on difficult conversations through the relationship my sister had with its authors, Sheila Heen and Doug Stone and Bruce Patton. And Erica mentored me to teach that work for a number of years. And then that was the antecedent to starting Mobius. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, in a lot of ways, you've already named the different intersections of the things that contribute to why you started Mobius. And I'm also wondering how relevant the, I've heard you speak about a sickness that you had in your twenties. And I'm wondering how much that also, was that like maybe the last domino to fall that that you said, all right, I, I have to move forward with this project. And you can enter in, in whatever way you would like, whatever way you feel called to, but what ultimately contributed to you saying, all right, it's time to start Mobius now. And, and then we can go into your work from there. Mm. I'm going to, if, uh, if I could, I'm going to take that as two questions. What was the 
gift of my early cancer and what was the impetus to start Mobius? Cause they're mm-hmm. related, but not the same question, I think. Mm-hmm. So I, yes, you're right. I had, I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma when I was 22 years old and I spent a year in 36 rounds of chemotherapy and six weeks of daily radiation. And I was very, very well helped and healed by a modern medicine and also a turning inward to what were the real deeper root causes of my getting ill in the first place. So like many people who come ill, it's a gateway or a potential portal to really look at what's toxic in your life, what's unaddressed in your life. And it certainly was that for me. But I think most importantly, I took two lessons from the year with my illness that still shape who I am as a leader and shape who I am as a founder of a company. One was that I the experience was very lonely. And even though my family was with me and some friends were with me, I found the process of being ill very isolating socially. And it left in me a really strong impetus to create a community that had a commitment to show up in the light and in the dark. And I think one of the things that we get most beautifully right in Mobius and in our global community broader than the boundaries just of our firm of wide friendships with many people who are practicing these transformational arts is the importance of showing up for each other at poignant moments and the generosity of really operating as a sangha and um, weaving our lives together in a deeply intimate, continuous, forever kind of way. And I think I wouldn't have had the passion for that, or maybe even known the incredible importance of that, how homeopathic that is for how isolated our culture is, if I hadn't had a felt experience so early that was so shaping. And I really believe that a pandemic that we have in society is the primacy we put on autonomy and what we call resilience, which is really, I think, a resistance to how fundamentally vulnerable and interdependent we actually are. And we see that denial of interdependence, not just in social fabric and in our lack of care for each other and our compassion, lack of compassion, but we see it in our disconnection from the planet. It's, you know, everything stems from this false understanding of our natural unity. So I think that's really, really was an important lesson in my life. And it it really informs our work and also what we're trying to help client organizations create as a texture and a fabric of belonging inside those organizations. That's, you know, one of the tenets that we're trying to promote. The other one was just the importance of a spiritual life, because I really felt in being as sick as I was, it takes you to the brink of having to look at you know, what your entire podcast is devoted to, what matters, what's meaningful on my deathbed, what will I be sorry I didn't do or grateful that I did do. And I really saw very, very early the hollowness of things that our society says are very precious and worth devoting your life to, like status or money or security or prestige or renown, the absolute emptiness of pursuing a life that was devoted to that revealed itself in every CAT scan. You're not laying on the CAT scan machine thinking, gosh, I wish I had one more car or darn, if I only had one more ring, you're thinking, please, God, let me live to walk my sister down her aisle or watch my parents' grandchildren be born or help suffering. Like that's what you're praying for. And when you spend a whole year praying to give your life in service and be present to the things that are preciously emotional and matter, then that's what you give the rest of your life to. 
So that's that's the answer to your beautiful first question. The impetus for starting Mobius, probably each of the founders would tell a different story and each <laughs> of them would be true. Because I think for each of us, it was the culmination of our personal lives, our you know communal lives, our professional lives, our relational lives in different ways. So I'll just speak for mine. When I was teaching the work on difficult conversations, at the phase in which I started to pivot to thinking of conceptualizing Mobius, our two-day training started to get the following requests. Could you take your two-day training and make it a one-day training? That one-day training was great. Could you make it a half-day training? Half-day training, really good, but could it be a brown bag lunch? And it just got more and more and more derivative. And I was really fairly soon after having survived cancer. And I thought, surely God did not spare my life so that I could entertain people over lunch. Like it just was a mismatch for my aspiration to really make a difference and do something profound and something revolutionary and um, what was possible in the guise of corporate training. And so for me, I thought, what if I go counter trend and I create an organization that's built on much more radical principles of generosity, of depth, of a restorative offering? Would there be clients that want something that significant as an intervention in their organizational culture? And I, in a way, I didn't really ask it as a market research question, like, will I have work? I really, it was really a calling of my soul that anything less wasn't going to be good enough uh, to honor what I, the grace I had been given in my recovery. And so I really felt like I have to try. If it doesn't work, I'll pivot, but I have to try. And I'm very, very grateful that it did work and it's still working. And Mm -hmm. it's been nothing but a blessing to help create and and guide Mobius for the last 18 years, really a privilege and a a joy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have many reflections and then perhaps set a container for where I envision the conversation going from here. So um, first, I'm just, I'm incredibly grateful that you are willing to share your story because I, I think one of the beautiful things about podcasts, about conversations like this is that someone else might be spared having to go through the hardship of being brought to their knees by an illness and by hearing your story, will realize what actually matters to them. They'll be in touch with, yeah, that, that car is not going to make a difference if I'm on my deathbed. I'm not going to be wishing that I had more money or a better ring or higher status. I'm going to be I'm going to be wishing that I I left it all on the table, but my my heart, my soul, my spirit were calling me to do my whole life, and perhaps maybe I wasn't looking at. And every conversation that I have on this podcast, and and I'm grateful to say that many outside of this podcast are reminders of what really matters to me. And so thank you for that in this moment. I think in terms of container, what what I have in mind for the rest of this conversation. I would love to look at Mobius on a, a high level. If you were to describe what, what Mobius is, what you do, it's ostensibly, if you were to look it up on a webpage, it's organizational executive coaching. And I know that it's a whole lot more than that. And once we paint the picture, I would love to dive deep into individual practitioners or what constitutes a really good individual practitioner. I know there's lots of different we could talk about embodiment, we can talk about cultivating stillness, we can talk about meeting someone in their their pain, their suffering, their trauma. 
So how, how does that sound for place to go for the rest of the time we have together? Totally glorious. Let's do it. <laughs> so yeah, I, I would love to hear maybe the tagline Mobius, but then let's double click on it and go, what, what, what is Mobius really doing? When someone consults or engages Mobius, what, what are you helping to, what are you helping to identify and, and maybe shift in the organization or the, the human that you're working with? Yeah. So there's lots of different ways to answer that question. I'll take a few and then you can tell me which ones uh, are exciting to you to double click on, as you said. Mobius is a premier leadership development firm and we have four service lines. Uh, We do executive coaching, as you referred to. We work with a lot of top teams for a year, helping them to become, build deeper trust, address conversations or resentments that are long held and derailing their ability to work collaboratively and work effectively together. We do very deep dive leadership programs, which I'll say a little bit more about in a moment. And very uniquely, we do a service called an executive retreat, where an individual executive or an executive and their spouse, or sometimes an executive, their spouse and their parents, and sometimes even an executive, their spouse and their children come to us for a few days to do a deep healing retreat, looking at family issues, looking at issues of legacy, looking at issues of vision and dreaming. If they've stepped into a new role or they're in transition to a broader role in their leadership inside a firm or a company. So it can be anything from a chance to really articulate your aspirations as an executive to helping your family to address much more personal, delicate issues of that are difficult and challenging that family. And we spend a few days with them offering the best of our transformational coaching and resources to individual repair process or an individual unlock and unleash. So it could be in uh, in tandem looking backwards at the family history and looking forwards at the executive's possibility. In fact, when we get it right, it is both those things. So that's the sort of swath of ways we support corporate clients. We tend to work with very senior leaders in part because one of the purposes of Mobius is to help, as I said, to create a restorative impulse into the world. And when you work at the top of an organization, that's an incredible lever for influencing all the lives that those leaders custodian and steward. So for the same reason, you in the public sector, we try to work with change agents and people that are leading NGOs. And we've even had the privilege of working with some democratic campaigns, because when you work with leaders that are shaping culture, you can have a much broader impact in, in some ways than, than otherwise. There are, of course, other social change strategies that have equal integrity and impact, but that happens to be ours. And what are we doing I think you could describe us as experts in vertical development in the sense that we are really focused not so much on business strategy or business problem-solving skills. We're really focused on cultivating the inner life of the leader. And often we use my sister Erica Ariel Fox's model called Winning From Within and draw on her articulation of four archetypes to unlock transformational capabilities, the most critical leadership capabilities for leading in a very complex time as we're in now. I'll just name them briefly, and then maybe I'll say a little more about the restorative dimension. So Erica talks about innovation and imagination and creativity, and she encapsulates that in the archetype of the dreamer. And the dreamer's emotional gateway is joy. And I think one of the things that's happened, because for many, many years, organizational culture hasn't welcomed emotions in the workplace, 
we've denuded everybody's natural arising passion and sense of purpose and sense of calling in a kind of dulling down or down regulating of emotion. And then you actually have to reinvite leaders to unlock or ignite their natural joy mm -hmm. and to bring it every day into the workplace, which we of course know is promote innovation, is going to provoke a sense of people's vitality and well-being. It's an incredible source of love in the workplace to unlock that quality. So the dreamer is the first of her dimensions. The second one is really about the cultivation of trust. It's about collaboration. It's about psychological safety, to use a term from our friend Edmondson. It's about belonging. And she encapsulates all that sort of emotional intelligence and relationship skill in the archetype of the lover. The third one is about a very, very important thing for leaders, I think, to continue to recommit and realign themselves, which is ethical boundaries and ethical standards and committing themselves to walk in a way that's consistent with their own principles. It's also about saying the hard truths. Many, many organizations struggle to create speak up culture and a lot of conversations become gossipy or under, you know, over at the water cooler rather than the landscape of everybody's collective attention. So that archetype that is about potency and power, she calls the warrior. And I think part of the benefit of really getting the warrior online is you start to really set boundaries to protect your own energy and manage your work-life balance or life-work balance in a way that creates wholesomeness in your life. I've seen many, many, too, many two executives in profound grief about the moments of their family life that they missed because they gave too much of themselves to work. And I think post-COVID, this is a thing that as a culture, we're starting to wake up to. But when Erica was writing the book, this was kind of an unspoken shadow in corporate life that was really important to address and bring forward. And the fourth of her archetypes is the thinker, which she calls the thinker, which in a complex world, I think, is about having the humility to suspend your own expertise and opinion and to be open to divergent views and sort of endlessly fascinated in all the nuance and texture of a complex picture and being open to learning and being able to take on board divergent perspectives in a way that informs and elevates and refines your own thinking. And so each of these archetypes are precious toolbox, part of a toolbox for a leader in transformation. But Erica's research would suggest that in many, many cases, one or more of them are deflated or underutilized or not fully integrated into the leader's repertoire. And what winds up happening is that most executives simply default to the one or two that they're most comfortable with. And having now worked with thousands of executives, I think I could reliably say traditionally anyway, that's an over-index on warrior thinker and an under-activation of dreamer lover. These four archetypes also map to the four quadrants of the brain. So another way to say what I just said is many organizations preference left brain intelligences and undervalue right brain intelligences. If we were to speak in archetypal terms gender-wise, we would say they tip towards a more masculine expression and then there's an out-of-balance of the feminine expression. My teacher, Thomas Hubel, talks about this as a disproportionate emphasis on yang energy or exertion or drive or manifestation and an underemphasis on ying orientation of metabolizing and integrating and bonding. And I love that. And I so one way to describe what Mobius is trying to do is to rebalance or make more holistic the individual leader and the culture in which they lead so that many more facets of our myriad intelligences come online and we start to create 
organizations that have all of that aliveness available to them and all of that beauty soaked into their organizational welcome. There's so many places we could go from here, Amy. I guess one, I want to check a couple of things about what you said, and then we'll, we'll see where it takes us. Is there, I guess, what would you say about I'm making this, I'll, I'll make it personal. I actually, although I identify as male, I, I probably index more naturally to the lover and dreamer archetype. Are there folks that show up to Mobius that are kind of more in, in that place and they need to be more practical and pragmatic or, or to maybe reactivate the left brain a, a little bit more? Is that something that you see? Yeah, I mean, there's two important things to say in response to what you shared, Michael. One is I purposefully said masculine and feminine so as not to gender stereotype that these are men and women, um, because that's for sure not true. Mm -hmm. I've met many male executives that have refined lover and dreamer. And as you say, you know, for whatever reason, often because they had a very aggressive father disown the warrior, let's say, because they saw anger badly used in their childhood and they made a vow, understandably, not to act like that. But in disowning the violent dimension of the warrior, they've disowned also the power and embodiment dimension of the warrior. So you can, it's not even black or white, like you could have facets of an archetype well wired and other aspects of the archetype in sort of unconscious shadow zone. So it's very individualized, the development pathway. And it's not that we're trying to sort, you know, is somebody a lover, dreamer, or a thinker, warrior? Our Erica's presumption is that everybody has everything. I mean, we all have four quadrants of our brain, right? I mean, just by basic neuroscience, it's clear we all have these gifts and abilities, but depending on each person's life narrative and whatever their particular hurts are, and for very good reason in order to psychologically survive, we often turn off dimensions based on what was socially approved or what was safe in our family or what we saw role modeled well or badly, abusively or you know harmoniously. And then when you give people permission and also some exercises that really open the portal to those particular leadership facets, you watch, it's like literally watching a gray picture start to be multicolor. The, everybody just steps into such a fuller version of who they are and the leader that they could be. Um, so that's the first thing to say. If I was making a more of an organizational diagnostic response, I would say that particularly companies that are trying to innovate tend to recruit people that are more on the right brain side, as you illustrated it, because they want their imagination. They want their ability to think in novel ways. They want them to be open-hearted and alive with a sense of purpose and shared mission. And for those people, in some cases, some of those other dimensions that we were talking about, like boundary setting and speaking hard truths and thinking neutrally don't come as naturally. And so absolutely, yes, it's for each person, it's stretching their stretch corner. It's not a cookie cutter model of development. It's very personal. And then I would add one more thing, which is in, um, we color code our programs, I think usefully green, yellow, red. So a green program is about learning some skills, uh, any of the skills we've been talking about, collaboration, innovation, energy management, thinking complexly and, and being able to pivot with cognitive agility. A yellow program is adds to that range much more exploration of people's authentic voice as a leader, of the things that make them vulnerable, of the dreams that they hold. It's sort of a deeper inner exploration of who you are as a leader and what you value most, what you care about most, and how to more and more craft a life and a leadership style that reflects that deep sense of center. 
Mm. In a red program, we're going a, a significant layer deeper. And red programs really are attempts to help people stop and ask the most profound questions of their life. It's like a deep pause in the middle of a life, giving executives a peer group to ask those questions with support, with solidarity, with structure, and taking them through a very meaningful exploration of their life experiences, of their habits, both the strengths that they've developed, but equally the things that derail them over and over and over, and the antecedents to those behaviors. Like, why is it that you act that way? And the why is often early childhood adverse effects, children that went too soon to boarding school, children that grew up with an alcoholic parent, children who had a sick family member, children who grew up in a family where there was a bereavement, a serious personal loss, people that immigrated, people that moved around tremendously and never had a sense of home or built a base, people who grew up in poverty, people who grew up in prejudice, people who grew up in countries where corporal punishment was welcome, significant scars mm -hmm. in people's lives. And I think one of the great secrets in corporate life is that people are walking around very high performing, very wonderful people with buried trauma that goes untreated. And so they get over and over feedback about how that trauma is playing out in their interpersonal relations, but they don't get any invitation to look and to heal. And so Mobius in its deepest work is trying to be that, not just that invitation, but that very important refuge that's missing in our society, a place where people are, we humanize the fact that it's collectively true that all of us have such scars and it's individually precise to attend to how is that scar in this person that's sitting in front of me. And you do that with enormous compassion. You do it with a calibration to what's safe to open in a professional setting and in an interim setting. I often say to our faculty, the purpose in the program isn't to do the healing work. It's simply to show somebody that there is a path of healing that's available mm -hmm. and to give them a glimpse of the freedom that it affords. And I think that's, you know, in a life that's a profound moment when you suddenly realize it's safe to look where your habit is not to look. Mm. I think that that segues really nicely into something I wanted to talk to you about the, the two big secrets in corporate life that you've named. And before that, actually, I just want to maybe underline and reflect back something so that I'm crystal clear because I, I heard you say it. And I think it's really important that I'm I'm only recently coming to this realization that what, what I'm hearing you say is that we are all, essentially, we are all the thinker, the lover, the warrior, and the dreamer. And we all have access to all four. And to be the most dynamic and effective leader possible, it is contextually being able to channel what's called for us in, in that moment. Am I understanding correct? I mean, I'm oversimplifying a lot. And and shortening it, but is that essentially what I'm hearing? Yes, but you said something that was more than what I said, so I just want to capture it. I absolutely meant to imply, and Erica's model suggests, that we are all four, but you also said cultivating the skill to choose in any moment hmm. what's needed. So Erica has three more archetypes in her model that capture that facet of awareness and choice. The lookout, she uses nautical images because her husband is a sailor. The lookout whose job is paradoxically to look in and notice what's the relationship between the, what she calls the big four, these four archetypes, and to be aware when your interior climate is knocked off balance 
so that you don't move from a dysfunctional or reactive place, um, but you really do something to recenter yourself in the moment so that you can make a more wise choice. So that's the first of the sort of consciousness capacities or what she calls the transformers. The second is the one you named, Michael, which is moment by moment choosing not from habit, but from awareness, which Mm -hmm. of the four to speak from and which intelligence and which voice is most calibrated to the person in front of you in the context in which you're operating as a leader. And that choice is only possible when you have wired all four well in your repertoire and they're all available to call on in the moment that you need them. So that's why the development journey is so important so that you really do have a full arsenal of leadership capacities available to you as you need them. And what people do before they have them is they outsource them to other members of the team. But a certain Mm -hmm. level of seniority and leading a lot of people, that's not good enough. You really have to have them wired into your system of and your leadership range. And the third one, which we didn't touch on yet, but I'll just add um, because I think it's so beautiful. The third one is her notion of the Voyager. And the Voyager Mm -hmm. is really important. And it's often very shocking to senior leaders, which is it's never too late to change. Um, We know now from neuroscience and neuroplasticity that even the things that feel like the most, that we're the most identified with as part of our personality or who we are, even the things that are the most intractably stuck can make a significant catalytic shift with a certain amount of awareness and a certain amount of inner dedication. And so the Voyager is the part of you that keeps looking at everything that happens in your life from the perspective of a lifelong learner or what Joseph Campbell would call a hero's journey or what you know, consciousness mystical tradition would call an evolutionary walk and looks for and uses the fertility of everyday life as occasions to raise awareness of what's in my blind spot. How am I contributing to this? What pattern keeps repeating in my life that isn't so good that I could shift my part of? So the Voyager is a really important part of the model because it's the it's the element of hope. It's the ability to keep evolving, keep healing, keep integrating, keep maturing, keep expanding. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, that's what make, makes a search for meaning or a search for anything possible. Yeah. yeah. A past guest of mine who happens to be my transformational and leadership coach, Yotam Schachter, he said if he only had 30 seconds to coach someone, he, he cited your sister, Erica Ariel Fox, and he said he would ask the Voyager question. And the Voyager question is, how is life perfectly setting me up to learn and grow? I believe is, is the Voyager question. Is that correct? It's a beautiful version of a Voyager question. Uh One I like is, how has my life refined me to be medicine for the world? Mm. Mm. But in essence, they're the same question. I love it. So I want to circle back now to the two big secrets in corporate life. It was something I saw you posted on LinkedIn. I believe it was also in your talk that you gave at Next Practice Institute. And paraphrasing a little bit, but secret number one dealt with personal and collective trauma. Let's just start there and we can get to number two after. Yeah, great. So I think I've sort of alluded to secret number one earlier in our conversation. Mm-hmm. I think that there people really don't understand, or, or let me say it a different way. I think people do understand, but corporate awareness has not caught up with the collective understanding that most of us are broken and fractured in some way. Life has impacted us in in challenging ways. For many, many people, that's a whole landscape of their childhood. It wasn't a moment in time, although even a moment in time like a car accident or a brief illness can leave a long scar. 
But for many, many people, they grow up in contexts that were impinging and overwhelming and impossible to process in that moment. And what we know from studying trauma is that what happens when you can't process in that moment is that part of you gets frozen in time and doesn't develop with the rest of you. And it goes sort of offline into a sort of suspended animation almost. Mm -hmm. And I think people are walking around with whole pockets of their being, their energy field, their leadership, let's say, with giant holes of unconscious stored hurt and pain and fear. And that that unconscious material is a driving force in how they act and experience life. Mm -hmm. It's not a small, irrelevant detail because it's out of their awareness and we don't have to care about it. Quite the contrary. What's out of our awareness is what is, what is unconsciously shaping the things we do that are less productive in our lives, with our family, in our workplaces, in our community, and in our relationship to the biosphere. That storehouse of subconscious fear and pain is what is keeping our society from being the Garden of Eden. Let's say it that way. Mm -hmm. So when you go into an organization and you start to look both at people's personal, family, and collective trauma, executive by executive, and equally look at the unconscious habits of the organizational culture that have been shaped by leaders with those scars, there's an enormous amount of texture to look at because many, many things are driven by the trauma level in the organization, including places where there have been ethical violations, places where there have been disrupted conflict between two leaders or a leader and their board, places where there's been unnecessary competition and siloing between divisions, places where performance management is punitive, places where people feel don't feel safe to dissent from their group leader and say, I disagree, I see it differently. Places where people who have historically been less privileged, don't feel confident in their career path and welcomed into the C-suite. Many, 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 many. I, I mean, literally, we could talk for hours mm -hmm. about the corporate symptoms that are trauma-informed symptoms. And now we're starting to get, after COVID, the notion of a trauma-informed workplace, which I'm excited about on the one level, because it means that we can now talk about mental health issues and get people with burnout and people with depression and people that are struggling with anxiety and with ADHD, the proper support in the workplace. But my fear is that we're going to treat the notion of trauma-informed workplaces so superficially and relegate it just to mental health issues and miss that all organizations are trauma-informed, but not in the positive sense, in the negative sense. They're trauma-shaped and, mm. they, and they benefit from sophisticated therapeutic healing work in a way that is surprising and immediately poignant and immediately relevant when you do it. People come in on Sunday night to a program feeling exhausted, feeling isolated, feeling unsafe in their workplace, often feeling unmotivated or undervalued, and they leave feeling a quality of intimacy, a sense of belonging, a sense of inhabiting themselves at a different level, a sense of embodiment and natural vitality, the wellspring of emotional, physical, and relational and spiritual health becomes available to them. Mm -hmm. And I believe every single time they will go out and be more innovative, bolder, and more contributing leaders, not just to the teams that they guide, but to the organizations that they lead and the societies that are holding those companies. I think it's a really significant, extraordinarily exciting and very, very touching movement in corporate life. Mm -hmm. 
And can you can you speak to collective trauma as well? Because I think that it's a little more novel, at least from my vantage point, than personal trauma. I think even though it might not be paid enough attention to in the corporate world, it's it's something that is, I would say, understood at some level. Collective seems to be only coming into the consciousness of our society in, in relatively recent, at least from my vantage point again. And, and maybe I'll just name that the way that I'm interpreting collective trauma among other things, there's a colonialization, slavery, there's like, I mean, the Holocaust is an obvious one. Could you just speak to collective trauma? Maybe you could take it in any direction. And, and you're probably seeing that as a question asker. I like to throw a lot of stuff out there, but ways that it might show up in the business world and ways that you're maybe able to identify where it is. Like what, what is a stuck energy around collective trauma look like? Yeah, it's a wonderful question. Uh, I'm going to answer it a few ways. First of all, I just want to acknowledge my teacher of the last eight years, Thomas Hubel, who's an extraordinary pioneer and thought leader in bringing the notion of collective trauma and into the culture. I've watched it become something that is talked about more and more over the eight years that I've been walking with him and teaching with him and supporting his work. And I'm just so grateful for his wisdom and his guidance to those of us who care to understand really how significant the dynamics of collective trauma are in society. That's the first thing. He's also created a very remarkable and cutting edge process work for treating and addressing collective trauma, which is done in large groups. And I've had the privilege of, of supporting him in that work. And it's it's very profound and very, very touching. So what do we mean by collective trauma? You alluded to it well in examples that you gave. It's, it's trauma that isn't coming from a interpersonal exchange between one person and another person in the dynamics of a relationship or the dynamics of a family, but happens instead in a larger cultural phenomenon. Colonialism would certainly be one, slavery would be another, anti-Semitism would certainly be another, economic disparity would be still another, gender inequity would be another. There are many, many, unfortunately, many, many examples. Genocide would be another example, long conflict like the Israeli-Palestinian example. People who've been directly touched or whose ancestors were touched by that kind of trauma, show many of the same emotional symptoms and long-standing difficulties as those of us who have been touched by family violence or neglect, and or you know attachment breaches. Uh, so we're just starting to understand the gravity of people who have lived through collective incidents of violence and neglect and absence, and to take those seriously. So. When I do leadership programs, I often ask people, you know, what was the source of pain or fear in your family two generations back? Mm. How does that live in your system now? And what could you let go of that would give you more ranges of peace in your heart and more degrees of faith in life uh, or faith in God in a non-business setting would be another way to say it. Because one of the costs of being part of collective trauma is that you're confidence in the goodness of humanity gets interfered with. Um, and you get to um, very, very existential levels of terror. And so helping people to rewire a sort of basic faith in the goodness of life and the goodness of the human heart 
is part of the collective trauma repair process, which is why you do it in a group because group healing and being witnessed and supported by a community of co-seekers or co-learners or co-journeyers is really important in that process because just the fact that a group is with you and holding you and supporting you in your healing process is itself a remedy for some of the most negative beliefs that we, you know, understandably extract from being violated in that way. Hmm. And could you share just quickly an example of if you were to go back two generations, or if I were also, because I am Jewish, I was raised Jewish. It's it's not hard to see, but what would what would it look like in terms of identifying, and then what would the process be? So if maybe you had grandparents who were Holocaust survivors, or escaped, fleed from the Holocaust, and then were in some sort of extreme poverty when they immigrated to a new country or whatever it might be, what would what would that process look like? Well, when I met Thomas and he first did his first session for me, he said, you know, Amy, you're sitting on 15 floors of terror and you don't know it. Mm. And that was after I had done 30 years of psychotherapy and all kinds of healing modalities. And I said, I don't understand what you're telling me. And he said, that's because you've never felt what it's like to be inside your heart without it. You just think that's how life occurs. So I started to get much, much more aware in the first few years of working with him in a healing process, how hypervigilant I was, how I was constantly scanning the environment for where the next painful moment was going to come from how I was counting my friends as if I needed to make sure I had somebody Mm -hmm. who would hide me in their basement in a dangerous moment, like things that make no sense. If you look at my life in isolation, they only make sense. If you assume that that kind of terror is passed down epigenetically and emotionally across generations. I think many, many, many different life experiences in our ancestry produce that kind of terror. Uh, You and I have one particular one in common, but I don't think it would be that different, the level of fear that many of us walk from that's in part informed by our grandparents and our great grandparents and how they experienced life. And when you start to take it a little less personally, it does one beautiful thing. It helps us just to walk as humanity in each other's healing process, because I don't have to have the same story two generations back in order to care for, empathize with, and feel committed to helping you come home to yourself and a life that's free of that fear. And you don't have to have walked the same walk I walked in order to be deeply committed to my healing process. We can all offer that to each other because the unitive factor or the unitive element is the terror and the unitive element is the hurt. And I, I just think that's very profound. Mm. I, find I don't it know if that's de- responsive, Michael, to what you Yeah, it's, I really appreciate you among all the other ways that you have opened up and, and shared what is true to you, I really appreciate you naming a, a personal example there. And I, I actually find it, it sounds, it might sound very heavy and of course it is, but I also find it very freeing because I know many people in, in my life alone, I actually personally know many people who ostensibly have had a quote unquote relatively easy life that there's there's nothing to indicate that they would have a, a deep level of fear or anxiety that lives within them and coming to this understanding actually can, to me it shows we're not defective right like something happened and it lives in us yeah it doesn't have right. to happen yeah 
Yeah, I mean, the end of your sentence is right. It didn't have to have to happen directly to me. That's that's right. So first of all, nobody who has been traumatized is defective. Everybody who has been traumatized has brilliant survival strategies that made kept them wholesome enough to survive it and to then have a moment later in life to have the grace to heal it. And I th- it's very important that we say, no matter how fractured or hurt you might be, that is not a defect. That's a, of course. a natural aftermath of whatever happened to you. But you're saying a second thing, which is worth underscoring, which is because we know from the research on collective trauma that trauma passes down generation to generation. I think people who are the children of somebody who was traumatized have the most confusing experience because on the one hand, they may have a relatively loving, intact family experience, but something is missing or something is unspoken and they sense it as kids and they know it and they feel the deficit in their attachment because parents who are traumatized can't create the same sense of bonding or the same hammock of holding that somebody who hasn't been traumatized would naturally offer. Even if there's a lot of love, there just isn't capacity. You can't give what your heart doesn't have open and available to give. And so those children go grow up knowing something's missing and feeling the impact of that absence, but no, not knowing what to put their finger on. I had a very dear friend come up to me during the NPI and after hearing Thomas, and she said, you know, I haven't been traumatized, but my father was in the Holocaust. And I wonder, did that impact me as a child? And it was an incredibly precious moment because when she starts to really understand what we now know about collective trauma, all of a sudden, many, many of the symptoms in her life and the experience of her childhood in which her parents were inevitably not able to give her everything she needed. And there were big topics in the conversation in their lives that were taboo to talk about because they couldn't handle it, start to make sense to her. And I think that meaning making for our generation is part of the restorative process. And there are things that we get to look at and address in our generation that literally were too overwhelming to the generation that suffered it. It's our work to do, not theirs. It's our work to do on behalf of the next generations. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that you have done an amazing job of making it extremely clear that a personal and collective trauma have major implications in all areas of our life, including the workplace and the notion that we can somehow compartmentalize and do our healing work over here. And, and then we check in as someone else at the workplace is uh, hopefully it's going to be old news in, in the very near future. And so I wanted to get to the second big secret that you name, and it's that spirituality is the gold mine underneath the boardroom table. And spirituality is a word that you've mentioned. It's another word that is it's charged and, and people have an allergic reaction to it. And I'm wondering if you could say what you mean by that. Yeah. I mean, let me first say that I think the fact that we have an allergic reaction is part of the collective trauma. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I think many people have had an experience of spirituality expressed in formal religious frameworks and that some of the formal expressions of religion in modern life have had a great deal of shadow embedded in them. And in many cases, a lot of violence and misappropriation of the sacred trust between a congregant and a pastor or rabbi or a leader, spiritual leader, and that in many, many spiritual traditions, we've divorced spirituality from psychological well-being. And you have people who have perhaps a lot of insight in a sort of 
sense of consciousness, but haven't done their own healing work. And then you start to see the symptoms of their unhealed parts express themselves when they're given power and authority. So I just want to first acknowledge that I know many, many people have been terribly hurt by religious practice, not just in our country, but all over the world. And I'm not saying that we need more of that. I just want to make sure it's unequivocal. What I mean to say by spirituality, you could use many words for that. I'll just describe a few of them. I think we've been told to put love outside the workplace and relegate that to the personal life. And I think that's a distortion. I think when you work alongside people every day, all year long for 20 years, there ought to be a natural and appropriate and boundaried expression of love. So I've had partners in consulting firms and law firms and various companies who've literally worked alongside each other for many decades, and they don't know that one of them has an autistic child. So that means that that executive that has a child with a, with a challenge isn't getting all the natural expressions of care and compassion and support and literal help that they should, because we've told ourselves it's unprofessional to ask for help in the workplace or to reveal something that's challenging in your personal life. So spirituality is at one level, just interpersonal compassion. Mm -hmm. At another level, it's, it's the divorce that we've made from the natural world and that we don't make sure that we're being nourished by the absolute beauty of the earth. <laughs> and we live a life that's urbanized and commercialized and don't envelop ourselves in the awakening energy of what's aesthetic, music, poetry, art, self-expression, creativity, and all of that being sequestered out of the workplace denudes the workplace of all the natural amazement, wonder, awe, reverence that comes from engaging artistically and aesthetically and naturally, ecologically. And so that's partly what I mean by spirituality. Mm -hmm. I also just mean the willingness and the longing to be of service. Mm -hmm. So when corporations are built without a notion of spirituality, then they run the risk of having only profit as their goal. And we see the extraordinary cost on every level of society of organizations that are no longer obligated to serve the commons. The original license to a corporation was dependent on an annual basis on what they were giving back to the community in which they lived. So part of what I mean by spirituality is the re-obligation of a company to be serving the people that work there and the community that they abide in and life more broadly. Mm. Um, and I think the more we do that, the more people will feel proud of being part of that organization, much more willing to grant that organization their life force, their gifts, their longevity, their engagement, their creativity, their highest possible contribution. The notion of performance management will go down proportionately to the degree that we invite these other qualities back into the workplace. You don't have to manage someone's performance. You have to inspire someone's performance. Mm -hmm. You have to ennoble someone's performance. You have to celebrate someone's performance. And that's impossible if you don't let spirituality in the workplace. Wow. I, I wrote down that that's all important. I really, I am honing in on the willingness and longing to be of service and what a, what a beautiful world it would be if every workplace was truly devoted to that. 
I just want to add, I, I, I know we're going to end, but I just want to add one more note because I think it's important, especially as practitioners uh, to the podcast, maybe coaching people. You don't have to wait for an entire organization to dedicate itself to a higher mm-hmm. purpose. Any executive can make that happen within their span of control of that organization. And then that mini transformation of purpose becomes like a lightning bolt into the organizational fabric. So whoever you're coaching, I encourage you to ask them, what would elevate their daily life? What would give them a higher sense of calling? What could they infuse their workplace with that would give them more meaning and enrich their sense of contribution and and daily activity? And if they do that, others will join them because it's it's a magnetic force of goodness. It can't help but be something that changes the fabric of the culture. And I shouldn't, don't think we should underestimate how one person can lead from anywhere in an organization, this mm-hmm. particular facet of this kind of emotional opening and spiritual opening and opening to healing can happen anywhere, anytime. Mm. Well, this actually segues really perfectly into where I wanted to go anyway. So I've heard you among many other things, you describe basically a really effective practitioner is someone who is an embodied transmission or their their way of being is is such that just their presence alone is kind of invitational i guess in supporting the the highest version of the person or people that are in their presence and i've heard we've we've named thomas hubel several times and i love the way that he describes and for those who are you're not going to see the video, but I'm doing an infinity sign. There's a circuitous, like feeling, feeling me, feeling you, and you're feeling me, feeling you. And I, I would love to, I say all of that. Just, script, by the way, is it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I would love to now bring this as promised. We, we kind of did the original container setting around what does Mobius do in a, maybe a, a broader sense. And now I would love to zoom in on the individual practitioner and, I guess what, when I say all that, what comes up for you? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I, what comes up for me first is to acknowledge a few more of my teachers. So uh, I've had the great privilege of studying energy work and embodiment work with a lovely practitioner named Linda Cesera, who's part of the Mobius Next Practice Institute faculty. And this last year, I've been studying with another wonderful uh, non-dual teacher named Patrick Connor. And all of them have really, along with Thomas, of course, refined my understanding of what it means to let your presence be the intervention. And I first heard that phrase from a wonderful Gestalt organizational consultant named John Carter. And when he said it to me, which was probably 15 years ago, I had pretty much no idea what he was speaking about. And happily today, I have a little bit more. So there are many different ways to support somebody's integration as a as a leader, to coach somebody to higher performance, to activate new capacities in them. But when you're really attempting to do the kind of depth work we're talking about that has a healing element, that has a deep commitment to self-awareness and integration and shadow work, and you're helping teams and organizations to look at these the rivers underneath the, the buildings in which they operate, maybe that's a way to put it, you really can't take anybody anywhere that you haven't traveled in yourself. Mm. So the first thing to refine as a practitioner is your own self-intimacy and doing your own work abidingly forever (laughs) is sort of the first principle of ethics in my mind as a practitioner. It's not like you take a weekend workshop and you declare a victory. 
It's just part of the walk. If you're walking deeply your own repair, then you're constantly bringing the freshness of what you've discovered and the spark of what you've uncovered and opened up into and the eros or potency of that expansion into your transmission with your client. And that can become a fertile ground for their self-investigation, their willingness to look under the covers, their courage to face their shadows, the safety with which they bring you their interiority. And if you're not offering that, to use your language, Michael, then you're telegraphing what you're not available or open for business all the time. So you said, what kind of an invitation am I? David White, my friend, the poet, often talks about what's the nature of the invitation that I'm making. And I think we're such intuitive animals that whatever invitation you're making, and most importantly, whatever invitations you're guarded against, the other person knows that instantaneously. Mm. We communicate that somatically, vibrationally, energetically, in a moment, in a heartbeat. And so that is the ceiling or that is the uh, circumference of what people will then share with us and where we can travel with them. And so as a practitioner, if my desire is to be the widest possible invitation to somebody's exploration and excavation and insight, then my most significant thing to do is to refine the instrument of hospitality that my energy field is willing to be and able to be. And that means really doing your own profound restorative work in your life and in your own relationships and in your own work and career so that it all sort of lines up multidimensionally. And then people will trust you with things that they really literally wouldn't tell to another person. Once you're a wide invitation, the quality of what you have the privilege to witness and receive really changes quite meaningfully. And it's almost alchemical. It's not like you have to change your business card or change your value proposition. You just literally change the welcome that you are. Could you speak a little bit more? Shadow has been mentioned a couple of times. And could you speak explicitly to what shadow shadows are or what shadow work is? Sure. I mean, shadow is you know, light and dark. So you have shadow elements of parts of you that are your gifts that you just haven't yet discovered or cultivated or had the right mentor to bless. So a part of shadow work is uncovering and expanding more of who you are into manifestation. And a part of shadow work we've sort of already alluded to is the facets of your life experience that were overwhelming at the time that they happened and live currently outside of your awareness. And where you really need somebody to custodian your journey to be, you know, the safe harbor in which you can unfold that knowledge of your own experience and reactivate the memories, the sensations, the emotions that were frozen at that moment. It's almost like a melting process. And another thing that a practitioner has to refine to go back to your question about competencies is really knowing how to titrate that melting process to not go too fast or too far beyond their Mm -hmm. scope expertise or faster than a psyche can actually metabolize and integrate. And we've gotten much, much more sophisticated in the last decade as a field of trauma about how some of our early efforts and sort of emphasis on cathartic expression really actually were overwhelming to people and actually caused them to decompensate much more than is necessary, useful, or kind. And so I think in the field of trauma work now, we're much more sensitized 
to opening things in a at a pace that a, that a psyche can absorb and make meaning of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems like in some ways we've probably already addressed this, but how how does one cultivate that level of inner stillness such that they're able to to meet someone's meet someone exactly as they are without and being able to titrate like where is this person i'm not going to go too fast i'm not going to go too slow eros is maybe one of the things right it's like an appreciation for beauty and channeling creativity and i i guess i'll I'll let you take it from here what are what are some of the different intersections that contribute to stillness and yeah yeah i mean i think part of what makes our field so demanding but also so boundlessly fascinating is that to be good at this, you actually have to study and integrate a sort of wide series of interdisciplinary arts. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned one of them, the cultivation of stillness through contemplative practice, through meditative practice, through martial arts, through ritual, through journaling, through silence, through spaciousness, through time that isn't effort, you know, that's just Mm -hmm. sort of a decompression time. All of that is about cultivating an inner equanimity, you know, what sometimes is called the calm in the midst of chaos. Like there absolutely as a practitioner, you need to have some practice and ideally you do it daily that quiets the mind and helps you to sort of expand the circumference of your inner spaciousness. I'll say it that way. There are intimacy skills about revealing who you are and being self-blessing enough to say even the parts of you comfortably that are in pain or that have been hurt or that are scared or that are more vulnerable. And equally, uh, the intimacy skills of receiving in a very unconditional, wide acceptance, someone else's interiority. I mean, you talked about Thomas's beautiful, I feel you feeling me, but the art of I feel you feeling me and the neuroscience reset that that kind of attuned relationship gives is a fundamental skill that a practitioner has to refine. And I think that's both about vulnerability. It's about deep listening, but most importantly, it's about understanding the holiness of anything that looks to you like it doesn't make sense or it's dysfunctional. I found myself saying on a podcast once, anything that isn't beautiful is a survival strategy that was necessary earlier in life. Mm -hmm. Anything that someone does that doesn't reflect their divinity is a trauma symptom. End stop. So if I, as a coach, know that whatever's in front of me is to be revered and received and bowed to, then I become an unconditional field in which it can also change. If I'm pushing up against it or I show up in any way with a judgment of it, it will move into resistance and only harden its grip. Mm-hmm. So it's not just spaciousness in the sense of vast holding. It's also cultivating that perspective of unconditional acceptance so that you become a place where people really can reveal their secrets. That's mm-hmm. very important. Mm-hmm. I think the third thing you talked about beauty. The third thing is nourishing your spirit so that you can walk into the darkness and not lose hope. Because when you take somebody further into their trauma, they're counting on you to be the light at the end of the tunnel. And you can only be that light if A, you've done enough of your own trauma work, not to get sort of symbiotically engaged with what they're bringing, but B, you've really cultivated a deep faith 
that it, there is another side and that somebody can heal anything. And equally, a respect for when somebody doesn't have the strength to go so that you don't become an evolutionary pressure for them to open a door that is actually best left closed. So we talked about the difference between the work of people who were in the Holocaust and who are children of the Holocaust. Part of what I'm meaning to say is for some people, looking actually is too much. Mm-hmm. And to be a practitioner that has a deference to what the psyche is telling us about what's possible and what can be get addressed and what you simply have to work around. So I also think anybody working at this depth must get at least a basic foundational training in trauma and trauma healing. I think to neglect that is to walk into a treacherous terrain without the right equipment. And I think it's irresponsible with this level of understanding in the world about how important and how prevalent trauma is to be a coach or a practitioner or a therapist who doesn't at least get that basic education. You don't have to become a trauma expert, but you have to at least know when you're hitting something that's outside your scope of practice and ought to require you to refer somebody to a therapist. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. And I think the last thing is being able to connect the dots between personal work and organizational culture because we're not therapists, we're change agents inside organizations. And so uh, part of the onus is on us to understand the landscape of adaptive leadership and organizational learning and what it means to be a deliberately developmental organization and how to create psychological safety in teams and how to take groups through the process of collective intelligence and working with emergence. I think that is equally important terrain for us to get expert in as it is to look at early childhood experience. And I so I think there's almost like an emerging field of restorative work that has an equal emphasis on individual development and healing and organizational cultural intervention, and that they actually are two sides of the same coin in the future more and more. So I hope that's responsive. It yeah. sure is, Amy. Well, before yeah, I'm looking at time here and I have a few more questions that I want to ask, but before we get there, is there anything that we haven't discussed about you, about Mobius, about uh, being a practitioner that you would like to invite into the conversation now that we haven't already? Maybe just to make an invitation to your listeners that every year we do an annual gathering called the Next Practice Institute, usually in the fall. We'll do it again in October of 2023. And we gather hundreds of coaches, team interventionists, facilitators, consultants who have an interest in this kind of nexus of best practice and next practice, thought leadership and practitioner refinement, organizational level systemic work and individual development and coaching. And we study together, we play together, we dance together, we mm-hmm. meditate together, and we have the great privilege of hosting Thomas on the Wednesday of each year so that we do mystical study and study mystical principles together. And we'd be so happy to have you either with us in person in Boston, or we stream all the keynotes free and live on our Facebook page. So if you're listening and that's of interest, the registration site will go up January 1st, and we'd be honored to have you. Awesome. And I think by the time that this episode is released, Amy, it will be past January 1st. So we will link to that in the show notes and we'll we'll link to all the beautiful mentors and teachers that you've named in the show notes as well. And just a few more questions. One is what's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Every morning when I wake up and every night before I go to sleep, I say the Jewish prayers that are thanking God for taking me into the day and for the gifts of the day. And 
those are my favorite two moments of the day because they bring me back to the moment when I was sick and remembering, even though it's decades later, what a grace it is every day that we're alive and that we're well. And uh, I'm very grateful to have that reminder because when you're sick early, it's very easy as your vitality and your health returns to forget the lessons of the time when it was delicate. And those two prayers give me a chance to remember. And mm. those are very precious moments. Um, but I could equally just say getting on the phone with a friend and hearing about their lives and feeling our love and yumminess together. And many of my friends are very long friends and part of the fabric of my life. And so they come with a flood of memories and longitudinal sight and reflection of my growth and my meaning. And I hope I do the same for them. And Mobius, you know, maybe the only other thing I would say about Mobius that I perhaps is the thing I'm most proud of. I, I mentioned it earlier, but it's it's a global group of practitioners and it's a it really is a, a friendship network and a community of love. And every moment that I have the privilege to teach with them and travel with them and work with them is is also a precious, thankfully ordinary moment in my life. Mm-hmm. 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 I've had the great privilege and pleasure of interviewing several people under the Mobius umbrella. And it is always, including with yourself now, it is always a delight to have conversations with people that are part of that community. And and I'm really looking forward to hopefully this upcoming October uh, joining for Next Practice Institute and, and potentially other trainings, because I, I'm just a big, firm believer in, in what you're doing and, and what the company is doing. Thank you, Michael. How lovely. You're very welcome. We're all unfinished. <laughs> and I'm wondering in in what in what ways do you, you can answer in any way you want, but do you feel most unfinished or where would you say you're placing your energy around like what, what your current edge is? Such a good question. I could answer so many things because I'm so unfinished. Uh, let's see. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I'm thinking about a lot, because I'm just about to turn 60, is how to how to train and support the next generation of practitioners in this work. That was part of the impetus for starting NPI five years ago. We've just taken 12 apprentices who have a two-year learning cycle with Mobius in which 50% of their job is to learn, because I really want to support them to deepen themselves and heal themselves and and learn this kind of work. And I feel thrilled about that. We just finished year one and each of them is a jewel. So one of my cutting edges is thinking about how to codify and disseminate some of the practices that we've refined in the last 18 years so that they have a wide expression after my retirement in a bunch of years. So that's one thing. More personally, I'm um, still slowly excavating my 15 floors of terror and fear. I'm not sure what floor I'm on, but it's thankfully a lot less. And it's a daily work, honestly. It's a daily work. It's a long walk. And I don't feel a rush. I feel like each layer that leaves, leaves my spirit lighter, leaves me a little more nimble to respond and be present in the moment to a conversation like this uh, with a little less artifice and a little less control and a whole lot more trust. So I'm grateful for that, but I I would have the humility to say it's an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. And the deepest answer to the question is Patrick is really working with me on deepening my faith and my surrender and the parts of me that are had difficulty in my life and saw a lot of difficulty have a real resonance with suffering in the world. Sometimes that is uh, interference to my quality of just letting myself live in a field of blessing and trusting the strength of that field. 
So I'm really working on surrender, I would say, is my deepest answer to your question. Mm-hmm. Very, very actively. And mm-hmm. I'm about to take my first trip to India in a week. And I am pregnant with that um, because India, like Israel, is one of my deep spiritual homes. And I'm going in the spirit of a quest of a quest. Yeah. You know, to, to deepen my faith and my closeness with the divine. And I trust that something will move and shift in that direction. That will be a gift. Yeah. Mm, beautiful. How how long will you be in India? I'm there for over two weeks. So it's a real immersion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Yeah, of course. Okay. Well, every episode, I like to invite in an organization or a charity that's doing great work. And and you have selected, I know it was a little while ago, but it was the Pocket Project. And I'm just wondering if, if there's anything you'd like to say about the Pocket Project. I will be donating. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes, and hopefully the listeners will join in donating. But what, what does the Pocket Project do? So the Pocket Project was founded by my teacher, Thomas Hubel, and his wife, Yehudit Sportis. And its uh, purpose is to build out our knowledge of the field of collective trauma and to train uh, practitioners who have the skills to do deep group process work on issues as they emerge in public crisis and to codify this healing work that is, I think, very cutting edge and urgently needed and to deploy those practitioners in geopolitical hotspots like the Pocket Project is doing a huge effort now in Ukraine. It's doing a significant effort on U.S. racism. It's working in the Middle East, and it's available as a network of support for, you know, whatever are the subsequent ecological and humanitarian crises that we will face. So it's both a sort of first responder effort with trauma-informed practitioners, but it's also doing the preventative restorative work in places that are not emergently you know, hotspots at this moment, but have mm. long, long archived scars in the fabric of humanity to re- to restore those so that we don't just repeat the patterns of that violence over and over. Mm. I deeply believe that if we want to have a world that's more just, more humane and more peaceful, we have to look at the history and we have to be take accountability to address what has gone unaddressed. And I think the Pocket Project is on the frontier of that work and I think, sadly, that the skills they're refining and the practitioners that they're training will only be more needed in the future. So mm-hmm. I would welcome everybody to consider at year end or early in the new year, giving even a small donation to the work that they're doing, because it's a way to take your accountability for whatever part of that you and your ancestors were part of. And it's a cleansing thing just to donate and support with your resources, such an restorative effort. Mm-hmm. Well, before I ask my very final question, you've already named that folks can connect with you on the Mobius website, and you've already included an invitation to Next Practice Institute and other trainings, but is there anywhere else that you would invite listeners to connect with you online? Yeah, I I would really encourage people to follow Erica on LinkedIn. She's a LinkedIn influencer, and she blogs on Forbes And she posts wonderful reflections on modern day events in society and deep philosophical perennial wisdom. And uh, it's ericaarielfox.com. And uh, I really encourage you to find her work and follow it and let it touch you. Thank you for asking, Mike. Of course. And the very final question, uh, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And I would love to know in the words of Amy, what does it mean to live a meaningful life? One of the people I've studied 
over many years is an Indian saint called Neem Karoli Baba, and he used to encapsulate his teaching in three words. And that's my answer to your question. He would say, love, serve, remember. Well, what a beautiful bow on the end of a, a beautiful conversation. Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to- a touching conversation, Michael. Thank you. I will remember this dialogue for a long time. Me too. And it's one of the, the great joys of, of doing the show is that it will, I have it recorded and I can listen to it whenever I want to now when I'm in, <laughs> in search of meaning or wisdom. If I get knocked off my path a little bit, I have a, a place that I can come back to among many other places, which I'm grateful to say. I experience you to be living into your definition of meaning, living with love, service, remember, there's just so many different words that you brought into the conversation. I, like you wanted to create a just, humane, and peaceful world, and we want to live in a just, humane, and peaceful world. And I think what I I just admire most about you and the the work that you're doing at Mobius is the multidisciplinary, the way that you are able to collide so many different things because being a human is all of these things, right? It's not just looking at trauma or just looking at beauty or just looking at fill in the blank. It's it's all of these things. And I don't know if I have come across someone who is doing all of the work together and somehow making it accessible so that someone who maybe hasn't done much or any inner work yet is still able to see the benefit because it's, it's really easy to take mystical and, and deeper practices and make them sound very esoteric and not approachable. And I experience you to be able to do that dance really delicately and, and beautifully. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I think probably what, what makes it the best for, in my estimation is just the level of heart and commitment that you bring to it. It's, it's clear even before we spoke that you're driven by something much bigger than your own personal desires and, and wants and needs. It's, it's something that transcends and, to, to be in dialogue with you is, is such a beautiful blessing. So thanks again for taking the time to be here. Thank you for having me. And to all the listeners, I hope that you have a beautiful, peaceful rest of your day or evening whenever you're listening and take good care. Thank you everybody for being with us. What a treat. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.